Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very slow. all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jimi Hendrix died at the age of 27, and he lived a life unlike any other. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Three would be the number of famous guitar players who seriously considered quitting after first hearing Jimi Hendrix play, Pete Townsend, Eric Clapton, and Jeff Beck. Ten would be the number of fingers that shredded psychedelic lightning out of his Fender Stratocaster. Another three would be the amount of heroin vials he was busted with in Toronto. One would be the number of famous frontmen who were so enamored of him that they accosted him on stage. I'm talking about you, Jim Morrison. Two more would be the hours he spent being chauffeured around Seattle by a complete and total stranger, a fan he had just met backstage. Seven would be the amount of lives he would spend searching as a professional musician. And one be the number of years he'd have left to live after he stepped off a plane in Canadian Mounties when digging through his luggage, all totaling 27. On this, our first episode of season one, a heroin bust, a very drunk lizard king, a joyride through Seattle, and the always searching Jimi Hendrix. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. searching for more vodka. His glass was empty. His nerves were rattled. He felt something flare beneath his quiet, inexpressive face. Something contrary, something volatile, eager to get out. His temper. 
How would that vodka disappeared so quickly from his glass? His girlfriend du jour, Carmen Borrero, walked around the living room of the mansion Jimmy was renting in Los Angeles. She took a quick hit from the joint they were sharing and then walked over to the kitchen sink to get a glass of water. She let the sink run for 10 seconds, stuck her long finger into the stream to see if it was cold enough. Jimmy stood, empty glass in his hand, and watched as the water from the sink seemed to run over both sides of her pointer finger in slow motion. Puerto Rican, blonde, former Playboy bunny, her dark eyeshadow, the perfect foil to her long bleached hair, pulled back casually into a ponytail. Jimmy had met her recently at the Whiskey A Go-Go on Sunset Boulevard where Carmen was a waitress. The house was in LA's Benedict Canyon, a geographically dramatic ravine connecting Los Angeles proper to the San Fernando Valley. Oaks, sycamores, evergreens, coyotes, rabbits, rattlesnakes, a serene, idyllic stretch of artistic Eden nestled between some of the most iconic stretches of American urban sprawl. The house itself had been owned by Zsa Zsa Gabor and had been famously rented a few years prior by the Beatles while they were on tour in America. It was there that the Fab Four hosted the party attended by Peter Fonda, high on acid, who would provide the inspiration for their song, She Said, She Said, I Know What It's Like To Be Dead. The same neighborhood where the Manson family would kill Sharon Tate, her unborn baby, and four others on a warm August night. But that wouldn't happen until next year, until 1969. Jimmy and Carmen partied together in L.A., at other mansions, with other musicians, with other bunnies. A regular spot was the Bel Air mansion of Eric Burden, lead singer of The Animals. Eric Burden, friend and former bandmate of Jimmy's co-manager and producer, Chaz Chandler. Jimmy's little brother, Leon, AWOL from the Army, partied with them too. So did a gaggle of Playboy bunnies. Jimmy, Leon, and Carmen, afloat in a sea of famous musicians, wannabe famous coups, and infamous L.A. scenesters. They smoked. They snorted, they drank, they cavorted, mainlining the lap of luxury. In the Benedict Canyon mansion, it was just the two of them. Carmen finished filling her glass of water and shut off the sink. She stood with her back to Jimmy and chugged the water, gulp by gulp. Jimmy stared at her back, at her ass, and felt that volatile flare up again. With each chug of water, his skin bristled. He looked around for the vodka bottle. Carmen turned around and resumed talking about Eric. Eric Burden this, Eric Burden that, Eric Burden, what a great host, what a great guy, what a great singer. Jimmy eyed the Smirnoff bottle on the kitchen island and swiped it with a quick flick of his wrist. Smirnoff, the devilishly dry proposition, as he had said, that one with the woman dressed as the devil with the thick ice cubes impaled on her pitchfork. Smirnoff vodka leaves you breathless. There wasn't much left, half a glass if he was lucky, but Jimmy turned the bottle upside down and dumped the rest into his tumbler. The Smirnoff bottle came down on the counter with a slam, not hard enough to shatter, but firm enough to send a message. Stop talking about Eric fucking Burton. Jimmy slugged back half of the glass of vodka and gritted his teeth. Carmen kept going on and on about Eric, his epic parties. And Jimmy tried to get his head straight, but couldn't get the taunting sounds of the animals to stop rattling around in his head. It's my life and I'll do what I want. It's my mind and I'll think what I want. Booze was a dead-end path for Jimmy. As he continued to search for who he was and where he fit in, who he wanted to be and who wanted him to be it, booze was a red herring. Booze pumped the brakes that shut him down, 
He could puff, he could snort, he could stick tabs on the end of his tongue until the cows came home. But booze, booze was Jimi Hendrix's kryptonite. His father, Al, was an alcoholic, abusive, neglectful. His home life as a child was unstable at best. Just like his father, Jimmy got jealous when he drank. Jealous and bitter. Jealous, bitter, and vengeful. Judgment, clouded, unreasonable, fickle, violent. Jimi Hendrix was not Jimi Hendrix when he was drunk. Carmen could tell Jimmy was getting irritated and thought she'd call him out on his bullshit. Jimi Hendrix, the ladies' man, the guy who had girlfriends in every country, in every city. Jimi Hendrix was going to get pissed off about her platonic relationship with Eric Burden? Chill out, Jimmy, Carmen said. It's not like we're fucking. It's not like he's Kathy, counting the days until she sees you again in London. Oh, Jimmy, I love you so much. You're so super groovy and talented. The bubble inside Jimmy inflated more. It got him hot, got him irritable. And the last shot of vodka kicked around inside his head and wouldn't settle down. Eric Burden was inside his head too. There, taunting him. I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. There was no misunderstanding here. The more Jimmy drank, the clearer it got. If Carmen wasn't fucking Eric Burden, she was at least thinking about fucking Eric Burden. Fuck that angry little troll. Jimmy grabbed the Smirnoff bottle by the top of the neck with his left hand and pulled it back behind his shoulder like Jim Brewer winding up high on that mound at Dodger Stadium. Shut the fuck up about goddamn Eric fucking Burden. It twirled across the expansive kitchen, ass over tea kettle, a blur, an instant. This big piece of spent glass labeled an eye-catching red, hurtling recklessly through the air. The bottle hit Carmen in the face, a dull thwack right above her eye. Her skin split open and the blood rushed out like blood does near the eye, fast and dramatic, non-stop. And the bottle hit the floor of the kitchen. Not hard enough to shatter, but hard enough to crack slightly and once again firm enough to send a message. Carmen held her hand over her eye, crying out loud, the blood finding its way through the cracks between her fingers. And as she tried pressing the blood back into her brow, she thought, Jimi Hendrix can be a real fucking asshole. Pimply teenager milling around backstage at the Seattle Coliseum was on the lookout for his hero. The show had been over for about an hour, but this kid had remained hopeful. Security was lax. He had made it past the one cop he saw stationed near the top of the hallway that led to the dressing room. Looked like he was sleeping standing up. The kid wasn't all that stealthy, honestly. And the whole scene was just chill. He held a copy of the Jimi Hendrix Experience's recent Electric Ladyland LP under his sweaty armpit and a marker in his hand. If Jimmy emerged from the dressing room, the kid's plan was to put the record in the marker directly in front of him. Say something. Try not to sound too stupid. Would you sign this, Jimmy? I'm a Seattle kid, just like you. He didn't have to wait too long for the dressing room door to open, almost like he had willed it to happen. The few people who were loitering backstage didn't seem to notice when Carmen Barrero stepped out from the dressing room, followed closely by Jimi Hendrix. Holding her hand, they both wore loose, flowing clothes that gave the impression that they were floating, which they were. Carmen and Jimmy had dropped acid earlier that evening. Jimmy carried around hits of LSD smuggled inside an empty bullet. He called them Purple Haze, 
and Jimmy played the show, tripping, floating in that way like he had been playing a lot of shows of late. The kid didn't say any of his rehearsed lines now that his idol was standing in front of him. Even if he had spoken, his words would have fallen on stoned ears. And Jimmy spoke first. Hey man, he said to the kid like there was no one else around in that hallway but the three of them. You got a car? Uh, yeah, he thought. He told his hero that he definitely had a car. A shipbox VW Beetle that he had been meaning to sell. It was sitting outside in the parking lot. All right, man, Jimmy continued. I want to take my old lady for a ride, show her around Seattle, show her where I come from, this and that, you know? Shit. His bughead springs popping out of the seats and a floorboard so rusty you could stick your feet through and touch the street below, Fred Flintstone style. He wasn't prepared to show Jimi Hendrix his broke dick ride, though he really didn't have much of a choice. You'll take us for a ride, I'll sign your record, man. The trio walked outside, it was pouring rain. The kid clutched his record tight to his side and held his sweatshirt closed over it like a makeshift canopy. He should have listened to his mom when he left the house that night. It's gonna rain, she said. Bring a rain jacket with you. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. He crossed two of his fingers holding onto the album and really hoped that Jimmy wouldn't notice the state of the car or at least wouldn't care. Ain't no use in getting up tight. Just let it groove its own way. Lay back and dream on a rainy day. Carmen and Jimmy climbed into the Beatles' back seat. Jimmy had to contort his legs to fit, but he was tripping so hard he just laughed. And the kid sat at the wheel, turned the ignition, and the windshield wipers sprang to life. Where to, Jimmy? When Jimmy wasn't drinking, he wasn't explosive, wasn't violent, wasn't an asshole. When he wasn't drinking, he resisted that whole trap of becoming his father, radiated that mellow, love-struck vibe that friends and strangers alike gravitated to. He was friendly, trustworthy, trusted others. He said yes a lot. He took the trip. He asked strangers for rides in their busted VW Beetles. He wanted to be wanted, wanted to be the person that others wanted to be around. He would search out the people that wanted to be in his orbit, gravitate towards them, find some others, gravitate in another direction. And the women gravitated too. There was Carmen and there was Kathy. And then there was Linda Keith. All she wanted was for others to see Jimmy like she saw Jimmy. She was an early convert to Jimmy's music, a true believer. She discovered Jimmy playing Café Wa in Greenwich Village when she was visiting the States with her boyfriend, Keith Richards, and the Rolling Stones on one of their early American tours. She decided to abandon Keith and the Stones so that she could lift Jimmy up. When Keith Richards realized that Linda wasn't coming back, he did two things. He wrote Ruby Tuesday as a sentimental kiss-off, and he called Linda's father to tell him about the dangerous, drugged-out black man she was spending time with in seedy American clubs. Her dad had her declared a ward of the state and literally marched into Club Agogo to drag her out of Jimmy's life. Keith Richards, who knew? What a little jealous prick. Jimmy didn't care. Linda or no Linda, the string of women was seemingly endless. There was Diana Carpenter, a girlfriend from when Jimmy lived in New York City who worked the streets as a prostitute. He hadn't heard from her in years when out of the blue she tracked him down at a show to show him a photo of a two-year-old girl. She told him it was his daughter. And there was Devin Wilson. Devin was a drug buddy and a groupie and a sexual partner when convenient. She would call herself Jimmy's girlfriend at times. Other times she'd run errands for Jimmy and his other girlfriends, grab them drugs and tea and then hang out with them. Devin took Jimmy down some strung out rabbit holes, snorting coke and heroin. Some called her a black widow type. Jimmy would alternately rely on Devin and go cold turkey on her. She was a drug. 
And there was Kristen Neffer, Danish model. She met Jimmy at his hotel, as many women would do over the years. She was with him when he played the Isle of Wight Festival. She stood on stage where he could see her at his request. She was there when he took an entire handful of sleeping pills seemingly by accident. She introduced him to her family. Her mom made him soup. And there was Eva Sundquist, a Swedish college student. Jimmy met her at a train station. He called her a goddess from Asgard, and her ass he guarded and worshipped feverishly. He dedicated shows to her. He'd yell out of his hotel room number to her from the stage, and she lost her virginity to him in his hotel room on tour. Soon after, Jimmy would get her pregnant. And of course, there was Bridget Bardot, Francis' answer to Marilyn Monroe. Jimmy met her during a layover at the airport in Paris, two ships passing in the night. He opted to miss his flight in order to have a two-day tryst while his people tried to track him down. Then there was Monica Daneman, blonde figure skater from Dusseldorf. Jimmy met her at, surprise, his hotel room. She described herself as Jimmy's fiance to anyone who would listen. She would share a bed with Jimmy on the last day of his life. Jimmy attracted beautiful women just as he attracted kids with records that they wanted signed. He was an idol to some, a god to others, a friend to many, and an inspiration to even more. But you attract this many people and you're bound to attract crazy too. A healthy helping of crazy. The kind of crazy that seeks you out from afar and slithers its way slowly to lay itself at your feet and make a terrible scene. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. 
All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Jimi Hendrix felt the desperate muscled arms wrapped tight around his left leg. He looked down to search for the source of the squeeze. His eyes squinted from the lights on stage and from the warped color swirls that were being projected on the walls and ceiling. It was like he was playing psychedelic R&B inside the opening title sequence of Hitchcock's Vertigo. The grip tightened as Jimmy's eyes focused on the one and only Jim Morrison of The Doors, one of the biggest bands on the planet at the time, slumped against Jimmy's legs and holding on for dear life. Mr. Mojo rising, apparently not doing all that much rising at the moment the Lizard King groping the voodoo child. Jimmy tried to shake him off, but Jim Morrison wasn't going anywhere. He hollered nonsense from the stage floor, drunken, out-of-key nonsense. This leather pant-wearing barnacle shrieking like a counterculture banshee. Jimmy could smell him. The Lizard King was drunk, skunked. He had to get this sauced asshole off his leg and off the stage. Standing next to him on stage, Lester Chambers beat an incessant tick-tock pulse on his cowbell as the band galloped through time has come today. Jimmy had jumped at the chance to join the Chambers brothers at the Electric Circus in the East Village. Any chance he had to psychedelicize his soul, he'd take it. Jimmy's band, The Experience, was in a weird place right now, and Jimmy was testing the waters, flexing, experimenting, remembering what it felt like to be a sideman to someone else's trip. The Experience had released three groundbreaking albums in just under 18 months, and that seemed like enough. The most recent, Electric Ladyland, featured other musicians and collaborators. Jimmy was jonesing to find out what else he could do, searching who else he could be. His eyes met Lester's, who noticed the stinking, bleeding, hippie growth on Jimmy's leg, and Jimmy offered up a reassuring smile as he continued to play the song's riff on his strap, a smile that said, I've dealt with my fair share of fucked up rock stars. I've got this. The Lizard King was trying to participate now. Time! He shouted from the floor, ironically missing the timing of the cowbell's tick-tock by half a beat. And again, Time! As the band worked the song's groove toward its 11-minute runtime, the Lizard King started to rise, a booze-soaked histrionic messiah. But Jimmy didn't need saving. He had to put this drunken king snake back into whatever basket he had crawled out of. Jimmy! The lizard king howled like a feral fatty arbuckle. More attention-seeking wounded animal squeal than poetic barbaric yap. And the metallic tick-tock of the cowbell held the whole scene in time, even as Jimmy's part of the stage was starting to come unglued. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Jimmy! Lizard King was upright now, working the stage as Jimmy's shadow, fumbling for the microphone stationed in front of Jimmy's face. The audience at the electric church was starting to notice the ruckus around Jimmy's legs as the Lizard King got louder and louder. And Janis Joplin, the cosmic blues singer for Big Brother and the Holding Company, who testified like an exhausted Etta James, one sustained note away from full-on larynx shred, stood in the audience, close to the stage, a half-empty bottle of Jack Daniels in her hand her eyes locked on Jim Morrison. She had come to the club that night as a fan, as a contemporary, as a fellow rock and roll hound. 
Her new album with Big Brother and the holding company, Cheap Thrills, had been a number one hit and made her a major player. But she felt her role at the electric circus changing over to Bouncer to protect her. Janice took no shit, and she sure as hell took no shit off a drunk asshole looking to make a scene, especially when her friend was playing his heart out on stage. Morrison was an embarrassment. Janice knew this because she'd been there before herself, with Morrison even. Dude was a mess, chubby little drunk. Jimmy attracted this sort of thing. He was a magnet for crazy people, for sane people, for everyday people. They all gravitated toward him. They wanted to talk with him, wanted to smoke with him, wanted to jam with him, wanted to fuck with him. Black, white, male, female, straight, gay, famous, anonymous. They fed off his smile, his spirit, his inclusive love of life. They could be old friends or new strangers, and they all wanted a piece. They'd show up at his hotel room, knock on his apartment door, they'd give him gifts, give him letters, give him drugs. Jimmy was more willing to answer the door, to stop and listen, take the gift, pop the pill, get on board, ride the train until he was ready to get off and change lanes. Sometimes, he'd attract big-time crazy, big-time ego, all wrapped up in the same person. Some dude who saw Jimmy's moment and drunkenly thought it was his moment, too. Right now, at the Electric Circus, that was Jim Morrison, the Lizard King. Morrison lunged for the microphone again, and this time got a hold of it. He pulled it off the mic stand and reeled backwards, too shit-faced to make a graceful swipe. The band kept chugging along with the groove. Cowbell kept tick-tocking. The Lizard King stuck that boardwalk poet pose. Long hands extended upwards, legs crossed together. Jimmy! Bellowed into the mic and then issued a guttural war whoop. Jimmy kept playing along, laughing off the insanity, nodding at the insanity, acknowledging it while quietly hoping that it would just go away the Lizard King would just collapse and he could be ushered off the stage. Janice got herself in position. She swapped the Jack Daniels bottle over to her left hand so that she could wave her right hand in the direction of Morrison, get his attention, get him the fuck out of there, try not to make a scene doing it. Morrison, you drunk fuck, she yelled. She couldn't help it. She took a swig of whiskey from the bottle, pursing her lips after it raced burning down the back of her throat. And then the Lizard King stood rock solid steeled himself and turned in the direction of Jimi Hendrix as he mainlined a fiery riff on his guitar. Morrison brought the microphone up to his mouth, stretched his arm out straight and pointed at Jimi Hendrix. I want to suck your cock. The fuck did he just say? Jimi laughed at the insanity of it all. Janice shot him a disapproving glance. This had gone too far. Get this douchebag off the goddamn stage. Janice Joplin sprung from the crowd floor onto the short stage and grabbed Jim Morrison by his shirt sleeve. She was ending this. She then clocked the Lizard King upside the head with the half-empty bottle of Jack Daniels. The bottle nestled inside his mane of billowing locks and thwacked against his skull. It all happened in a flash. Jump, grab, smash. Jim Morrison fell onto the stage and skulked off with the help of Janice Joplin, who, in her mind, had saved the day. But Jimi Hendrix didn't need saving. Not by Jim Morrison or Janis Joplin or anyone else. But Jimi Hendrix did need help. Help adjusting his sail as the wind changed direction. Help weighing his options. Help flowing in another direction when the chosen direction just wasn't working. Jimi Hendrix needed help to get out of a jam, to avoid the jam in the first place. And when the help wasn't there, wasn't readily available to lift him up, things got messed up beyond his control. And for Jimi Hendrix, Nothing was more messed up than the time he stepped off an airplane in Toronto in May of 1969 and found the Royal Canadian Mounted Police 
waiting for him. Jimi Hendrix experience had been warned on their flight into Canada. They had been roused from their mid-flight power naps, tour managers and concert promoters standing above the three of them, catching 40 winks on a quick morning flight from Detroit into Canada. Jimmy's crew had caught wind of a potential drug bust when they hit the airport in Toronto earlier. They learned that the band would be singled out and relayed the message to management. Jimmy and his bandmates would be searched. The drugs had to go. Now, smoke them if you got them. Otherwise, dump that shit out in the toilet in the back of the plane. They didn't have to be told twice. Public drug busts of rock stars was all the rage. And just look at Donovan, the Stones, the Beatles, the Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane. They'd all been busted as of late. And some conservative hippie-hating cops somewhere were surely itching to make an example out of Jimi Hendrix and his so-called experience. Just look at these guys. Big hair, freaky clothes, and tongues wagging and salivating over the notion of foxy ladies. It was only a matter of time before someone made an example of them, knocked them down a peg. The plane's toilet flushed a few times in quick succession. The drugs were gone, vacuumed into a holding tank somewhere in the belly of the plane. A pity, really, but no one was going to bitch or moan about not getting arrested. Jimmy's tour manager, Tony Ruffino, looked down at Jimmy slouched in his seat. You good, Jimmy? Got anything on you? Jimmy looked up, groggy, and ran his hand across his mustache and then through his hair. Nah, man, I'm good. I'm clean. Jimmy and his entourage were the last to step off the plane in Toronto on the morning of March 3rd, 1969. As they walked towards customs, they could see red-coated figures lined up in the distance. One stood with his hands crossed over his chest, another with his hands clasped at waist level. Real still, real patient. Royal Canadian Mounted Police, just like they had been warned. It's all good, Mitch Mitchell said under his breath as they closed in on their inevitable fate. Nothing is fucked. Mitch had the right idea. He had put on a suit with no pockets before getting off the plane. He wasn't wearing underwear. Full-on commando, baby. He had nothing to hide. They want to search him, then look at the full Mitch Mitchell. The Mounties stood there, in between the Jimi Hendrix experience in the city of Toronto, in their bright red jackets and dramatic black belts. Those big-ass hats. How are they expected to be taken seriously in those big-ass hats? Jimmy thought of Dudley Do-Right and chuckled to himself. Tony Ruffino elbowed him. Be cool, man. The crew reached the custom station, and then they heard the eight words that any traveling rock band dreads. Welcome, gentlemen. We need to search your bags. The Mounties separated Jimmy, Mitch, and Noel. Jimmy put his bag on the counter, unzipped it, spread it open. And the Mountie stuck his hand inside and started to pull things out. A postcard, a bottle of shampoo, a bottle of vitamin C, a dog-eared paperback copy of Joanne Chase's You Can Change Your Life Through Psychic Power. And finally, conveniently almost, like a dramatic third act reveal, the Mountie pulled a small glass vial and metal tube from the depths of Jimmy's bag. The vial was filled with three packets of white powder, and the metal tube was stained with something dark and sticky. Jimmy panicked. His jaw dropped. Wait up, wait, wait. This wasn't this, was it? Oh, shit, was it? Fuck, no, this wasn't his. A glass vial? White powder? He couldn't remember where he could have picked that up or what it could possibly be. And maybe it was slipped in there with that girl he met last night in Detroit. They got high, fucked around. She told him she had a present for him. He was just now remembering that moment, 
remembering that she never gave him that present. For that other crazy chick in L.A. last week, he wasn't digging her vibe at all. He let her know, let her down easier, so he thought, you'll regret this, she had said to him as he walked away. Jimmy flat out denied it. It wasn't his. Was not his. He'd never seen it before. Shit, he thought to himself, Tony is gonna be pissed. All that shit flushed down the can on the plane and this tiny little thing is gonna ruin us all. Follow me, the Monty instructed. Polite, but with zero emotion. We needed to wait while we test this. Jimmy sat alone in a small, brightly lit room in the airport while the Mounties did their sleuthing. He panicked some more, sat down, stood up, paced the room. They had a sold-out show that night at Maple Leaf Gardens. 18,000 people. What if they couldn't play the show? Shit, what if the whole tour is canceled? What if it's over? Brought down in Canada of all places. Fucking Canada. Hours went by. A cop occasionally checked in on him. Could they get him a glass of water or a cup of coffee? Holy shit, he'd go for a fat joint right about now, something to calm his nerves. It had been hours now since he had a puff. If there was ever a time for a long, slow drag from a freshly rolled joint, the time was now. But more time passed, and then a detective from Toronto's Metro Police stepped in the room. Jimmy read his face before he could even close the door, and he knew it wasn't good. The testing from the mobile lab was just finished. The baggies in the vial were heroin and the resin on the pipe was hashish, and they were placing him under arrest for possession. The detective assured Jimmy that they would play their show that night at the Maple Leaf Gardens. His own kids were holding two of the tickets to the sold-out show. They'd kill him if he had any part in the show not taking place. The detective chuckled. Maybe he could even get Jimmy's autograph for his kids before he left the airport. Jimmy forced a smile onto his face. What the fuck was going on here? The detective continued. The show would go on. Jimmy would play for the detective's kids and the other 17,998 screaming fans in Toronto that night. Go about the motions. Be cool, man. But then, after that, he'd be arraigned. He'd face a judge in Toronto. He was staring down 10 years in prison. It would be a long nine months before Jimi Hendrix saw that judge. He needed to keep his shit together, keep out of trouble, try not to do anything too stupid and that would be easier said than done. After playing the show and returning to the States, the court date hung heavy on Jimmy's mind. Sometimes he'd wonder if he'd even live to make it to the witness stand in that Toronto courtroom. This was one of the many things going through Jimi Hendrix's mind later that year when he stepped out of the Salvation Club in New York City and got himself kidnapped. Seven Club is scored and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer, editor, and co-producer. The 27 Club is mixed and engineered by Sean Cahalan and Matt Bowden, both of whom lent their considerable music talent to the scoring of this series as well. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, and Season 2 will feature 12 episodes on Jim Morrison. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to the 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and please spread the word about the 27 Club. As always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other podcast, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter, at DisgracelandPod. One way or another, I hope to be talking to you soon. Until then. What's up for your ears? Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner. The rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. 